You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes. Dead Air Knife here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2002 Undisputed Classic Juan. Best noise ever. Scariest noise ever. You know, I used to sit around as a little kid trying to make that noise and annoying my mother with it. It was like my favorite noise. It just feels good to do. Uh... You and me both. I used to have a, a a ban. It was a. I was not allowed to do this when I was uh, with one of my very first girlfriends, and it'd be the middle of the night. And as, as a little jokey joke, I would I would start making that noise, and she was like, not having like, don't you make that noise? Don't you make that noise? It was like this fucking scene from Wayne's World, where it's like, I'm the leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's where we were at what is it with people that have auditory fears you know it's one thing to have misophonia or something and i like i can't handle the sound of like a cutlery on a plate or food in people's mouths or the sight of it but you know just little weird sounds i had a friend's mom who was really who really didn't like that sort of sound or any weird voice and she would have hated that leprechaun bit too so like what is what is up with that man it's like body horror but just auditory you know i think it it's more that people are uncomfortable with feeling uncomfortable but this this goes this goes to the broader question, I think, of horror in general, and the thing that I have a, a massive disconnect with, and we've talked about it many, many, many times, is that, generally speaking, I do not feel fear when I'm watching a horror movie because my brain has a very clinical understanding of what's happening here. I'm watching a film with actors who are reading from a script uh, everything's been edited and here are the credits and everyone went home at the end of the day uh, barring a few onset tragedies over the years but but I can say that Liz but there are some films out there that have scared me and Juan is a film that I used to sit quite uncomfortable it was not just the, the the sound was banned lids i was on a i do not own this movie i do not want to watch it again it was too fucking scary we'll talk about the theater experience when we talk about the remake because much like uh, a lot of people the first time you encounter this film is probably through the remake you know, I'm not going to pretend like I was some kind of super hip, super cool guy who, oh, Juan, you mean, or The Grudge, you mean the remake of Juan? You know, I'm not going to be that guy because I wasn't that guy. But even this film, watching it a second time, I felt it, or watching it for the first time, having already seen The Grudge, 
was a milder experience because I was more, I had more of an idea what I was in for. But Juan itself still gave me creeps to the point in which I didn't own the remake or the uh, original. And when I bought the bullet, uh, because uh, somebody that I knew wanted to watch The Grudge, so I bought the DVD. Like, when it, it was dirt cheap. It was like maybe like five dollars or something like that. And then I said, you know what? If I got the remake, I may as well go and actually buy the original. And uh, that's the DVD that I used to watch for this episode. Old as shit, but there it Fantastic. is. Fantastic. Fantastic. This is not a movie I've ever owned at all. And I, of course, like many, was introduced to this through the remake. So when we talk about that, because we're going to be talking about The Ring next, and then we're going to be talking about The Grudge. So we're covering all four of these heavy hitters. And this is, yes, one of those movies that scared you, much like Blair Witch or Candyman. And we always seem to talk about these really big, biggity, big, big movies or movies that scared the shit out of you when we do a watermark episode and this is our 200th episode Wes so congratulations and thank you ever so much (laughs) for putting up with me all of these years Uh, you know you joke you joke about me putting up with you but gang I don't know if you guys are aware of how much Lydia contributes to this show you know back in the day back in the day I promised Lydia, I, pr- I promised her. I, I fucking like looked her dead in her eyes, and I said, "I promise, Lydia, if you do this show with me, um, I, you do not have to fucking do anything but show up. I'm gonna come over to your house. We're gonna turn on microphone, and we're gonna record it. Because w- what you guys probably don't know is Lydia had been taken advantage of. Lydia was always the 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 keener doing the group project that ends up having to fucking do everything." People wanted to do uh, film festivals or wanted to do uh, like, hey, guys, like I've shown up to Ottawa Horror. What's this all about? And next thing you know, she's like running the whole fucking thing while everyone's like taking credit, maybe not as maliciously, but that's how I see it. Or, you know, oh, let's do a haunt. Well, Lydia do everything for the haunt. I just had this idea. And so I always felt like and Lydia had felt like these projects get presented to her. And then next thing you know, she's the only one doing anything and it's hurting cats. And I said, that will never happen, Lydia. I'm going to edit everything. I'm going to upload everything. I'm going to do all this shit. Uh, So cut to now and Lydia does everything or at least everything of substance. We still record, but but now we're recording separately, but you do all the editing uh, you put it onto the website. I put like the final touches and it happened. I don't want anyone to think that I did like I did this maliciously. It happened so gradually that I wasn't really even noticing it because it would just be like, here's the audio from the episode and you would just send it to me because we'd record at your house and you had it on your laptop. And then all of a sudden one day you started to Oh, you know, I, I I edited it a little bit, but you can put your finishing touches on it. And yeah, like it would be, it would be edited, but, but for all like the big chunks of of empty time and space that would be in the recordings that are inevitable in any of these things. But it, it, your edits got tighter and tighter and tighter to the point in which like, I'm yeah, hundred percent honest with everybody here. I kind of even stopped listening to 
like, oh, I better check it out. I, I stopped listening because I, I was I, I was just like, no, this is fine. Um, and then I would just write the description like I do my Crypt Keeper-esque blurb at the bottom. And then I would just make the post that's already there visual. So Lydia does a lot. And, and, and so, oh, thanks for putting up with me. I'm like, no, you... I'm the clown man that's like, can we do a podcast? And and you do everything. It it did happen so gradually. And it's I, like you want to say, oh, it's like boiling frog. But I am not a frog in boiling water. Guaranteed. It's all my own fault. And I should have known something was up when I was like, hey, do you have the sound beds? I have to put them into the episode I just fully edited and I'm going to upload. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But hey, what do you do? Now, of course, other things have happened. So you don't have access to the exact same software that you had been using. Mm -hmm. We've transitioned to a different software that I'm more comfortable using, things like that. And then all of that transition really helped when we had to transition from sitting together, watching the movie and recording right after the way that the show ought to be the genesis of Dead Air podcast. So being remote was helpful because I was already quite comfortable having taught classes online already and commuting to work, telecommuting to work. It made it sort of easier for us to continue doing the show. The cadence of the show has slowed down, of course, and a lot of that is because I edit it, you know, because I'm busy all the time doing stuff. <laughs> but and saying no to a lot of stuff that I want to do, which Wes has helped me learn that I can say no to projects. Yeah. But here we are, two hundred episodes later. Two hundred episodes later, and you know, I I I think that there's like one thing that I always think about when I think about how long we've been doing this because it's over ten years, um, and I I just can't I can't believe that we stuck with it for as long as we did. But I can't do that unless I have you to do this and. This all started because, you know, Lydia said yes. She's I, and it wasn't even like pulling teeth. Like I say, I, I begged her to do this. But honestly, it was, hey man, do you want to like do this podcast with me? It'll be that's going to be on like Tomb Dragomir's show that, uh, you know. And you're like, yep, yeah, sounds good. And 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 I barely knew you at the time. This is not like we were fast friends for years. I think I had met you like fucking two times or three times before then. And but we recognized how well we had conversations about horror together and that we had it, it was almost like and it still continues to be like this. It's like two horror goons that meet up and need to catch up every time they talk. And we do that. And it's quite natural. You could just record us talking and. And that's basically what this show is. <laughs> Just us catching up and conversing about it. The only thing that we cut out is the catch up, which actually I do want to get to a couple catch up type conversation bits before we get right into the show. But he, you recognized just how well we talk about horror. We come at horror from very different places, but share that exact same sort of love of things. And we watch a lot of the same things which makes for rich, differing opinions about beloved horror film. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree. I think you and I have e each of our own expertise. We were talking about a little bit before the show, your background in like, photography and writing and 
and all that kind of stuff uh, it gives you a unique perspective. You're, you're so hyper-focused in the macabre, let's say, and the, the dark fiction and all this kind of stuff. I think that you pull things from stuff that I'm just unequipped to pull things from. And there's a, a billion examples of that, your little Cliff Clavin uh, tidbits where you're talking about historical events and stuff that you're pulling from literature and all that kind of shit. I feel like I'm very strictly like, I'm a movie guy. Like I, 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 I keep very close to the production of these films and when they came out and all that kind of stuff. And that's where I lie in. I was like, I like horror movies and I like other, I like other horror things like comics and, and, and video games and shit like that. But I feel like you have like, like, but I also like sit outside of that genre too. So, but whereas like you do not like, you're in the horror genre. And that is like basically it, which leads me to one thing I noticed just this morning that may be of interest to you from the folks at horrorhound.com, another horror podcast and convention and everything. Uh, they have a book out that I wanted to know if you were aware of called Halftone Horrors. And it is the history of horror movie comic books. Had you heard about this book yet, Wes? No, this is actually the first time I'm hearing about it. Holy fucking shit. Nathan Hanneman, the guy, one of the guys that run the Horror Hound conventions and hosts the podcast, he writes most of the books, it seems, that are, like, there's quite a few books that are related to HorrorHound.com. Uh, it had been a Kickstarter project, and I followed a few of these. There's another podcast I listen to about serial killers called Last Podcast on the Left, and they did Last Book on the Left about serial killers and it was really cool and i followed the production of that most of these are crowdfunded sometimes i'm not interested in supporting crowdfunding ventures but when it comes to books i do follow it because it'll eventually hit the shelves the way i see it if there's a crowdfunded project i'm not that interested in if it works it'll probably hit the shelves and this has so this is now available to the general public they were crowdfunding this like two years ago who knows what the delay was or if this is planned and normal, but it is, it hit the shelves in December and it's like 30 some bucks and it's a book about horror comics. And it looks like a fantastic hardcover coffee table book over 200 pages of horror for color mayhem. Wow. That's actually really interesting to me. I, I, I definitely want to check that out. Um, you know, some, a lot of the horror, or the horror comic periodicals that I have, the or uh, it, 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 they're kind of lightweight. Although there is the 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 Ten Cent Plague, which talks heavily about EC Comics and and uh, Frederick Wortham and all that kind of stuff, which is an amazing book as well. But this sounds fucking incredible. Uh, yeah, I'm very interested. This is one of the things where maybe some of my knowledge comes from the literary horror, gothic, macabre, and sick and twisted true crime kind of books that I read. Wes predominantly reads books about horror film for the most part. <laughs> so yes. I figured this would be like right up your alley. You're absolutely right. I'm so, uh, I'm, I'm so bad with fiction. Like I'm a, I'm a nonfiction junkie. I love uh, mm -hmm. like historical events and stuff like that. But if you combine my love of genre things plus historical events, um, then I'm com I'm 100% down, and I I, I just I, I have to consume as much as I possibly can. Uh, I think that that um, helps the show as, but like sometimes I can also feel like weirdly I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm I'm a Wikipedia page and it's not that interesting. But you know, 
It is insanely interesting, Wes. It's insanely interesting, and it helps because otherwise it would just be me rambling on with word salad, kind of tangentially related to the movie that we're going to talk about today. Before we get into that movie, I want to say thank you to our fans, our listeners, 200 episodes. Uh, a big thanks to actually from page to screen from the Geek House podcast. Stuart has shouted at our show a couple times, introducing us, no doubt, to scouts of new listeners, which is really awesome. And it's also had us kind of thinking about some of our past episodes, which is cool. And super thank you to Thomas. I finally did respond, Thomas, to your question about our previous episode that ties into this one. When did I interview the girls from Sadako versus Kayako? Yes, I did. Did I sent you the link. Thank you. Uh, this is our second time recording this episode, actually, because I screwed it up and lost it. And our previous episode, I had said, I promise I will send you the link, Thomas. So here we are. I have. Thank you for listening. And another tidbit, Thomas related. He had mentioned that he went to theaters to see Skinnamarink. We had watched Skinnamarink. I feel so, so deeply for him. So... If you want to help Thomas get through this horrible time of having to have seen Skin and Rink in theaters, check him out at tncomedy.net. Check him out on Twitch. Check out his YouTube. He's a comic. If you like, if you're here for the yucks, go and check out Thomas Nichols. <laughs> but yeah, he went to see Skin and Rink in theater. WTF. Have you seen this tragedy that is Skin and Rink, Wes? Uh, I have. Uh, I, I, I do not dislike it as much as you do. Um, I feel... I fucking hate it. Uh, I, I saw your, your, your incendiary tweets and I didn't want to get into it with you, uh, on, on Twitter of all fucking places. I don't want Elon looking at my shit, but like, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I felt the same way about it that I felt about Mad God where... I was watching this film and I, I, th I said to myself, I said to uh, Cassandra, I was like, I, f I feel like this movie is fucking trying to hypnotize me. Like I, I, ge I genuinely feel as though I turned on uh, a, a scary or, or perhaps an old CRT TV in a basement at three o'clock in the morning, not unlike the plot of this film. And I'm just being fed some kind of haunted stream of something. And it's extremely experimental, extremely strange. But I felt as though with Mad God, just going back to another strange film that I saw, for every person that tells me that it's brilliant, I always have the thought, where I agree with them. It probably is brilliant, but I am not. And I am a blood and guts horror movie guy. And I, I, I like more complicated stories, but when they get to a complicated story on top of experimental filmmaking, I just feel the movie is smarter than I am and I don't get it. And that's the the, 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 the the most mild thing that I can say about Skinnamarink is I don't get it. But I will say the fucking funniest thing about it is that when I first heard the title, 
and I, and I keep hearing the title again and again and again. And I thought to myself, you know, skin and marinky dinky dink. I'm a Canadian. I remember fucking Sharon Lois and Bram and the Elephant Show. And and it made me think. I was like, but it can't be that. It it can't be based off of Sharon Lois and Bram's The Elephant Show. It's got to be based off of something else. And and I kept forgetting about it, and I'd hear about it again, and I'd be like, oh, I'll look that up one day, and then I'd forget, etc., so on and so forth. And so when I finished watching the movie, I was like, oh fuck, you know what? Now I'm gonna like. Where does the title of this movie come from? Because I thought watching the movie, it would become obvious to me why it was called this. And no, it's it's there. There was a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons the guy said he was like, yeah, like I was Canadian and I watched Sharon Lois and Bram, and it was like this innocence associated with the word, and I want. And I was like, so you liter- it's literally based off of the song from the children's show. That's fucking insane. <laughs> And that is the only thing that held my interest. Uh, the the summary none none of this has it is horror for me, and I I enjoyed Mad God. I enjoy films that are experimental. I had to recommend Seder for people who felt as I did, kind of ripped off in a way because Skin and Rink was not. You know, I, it's weird because okay, it's a horror movie that did not come as advertised. What was the advertisement? It's a horror movie. It's it's to me it's not really a horror movie. It doesn't really fit. It's maybe too experimental. It doesn't have any sort of real plot uh, unless you read the summary. We had to read the summary on Wikipedia to understand what we were watching. So maybe we are not intelligent enough for this movie either. If if I maybe, maybe no one is. If I could be snarky, my takeaway from the entire film is it's the cinematic equivalent of a butt dial. Like you just yeah. you just feel as though someone has their phone on in their pocket and I'm seeing and hearing trying to make out what the fuck I'm looking at. I'm looking at a wall. I'm looking at a TV screen. I'm hearing whispers. I'm hearing out of context uh, conversations. When I first read the description of it on Shudder, do you know it reminded me of that scary Jim Davis comic the, the where Garfield is in his house and there's no escape and John is gone and he slowly starves to death. Like, I don't know if that was a real comic or if that was just something that became kind of a creepypasta on the internet or something like that. But it was like this, the idea was like Jim Davis made a Garfield comic for Halloween that was so fucking scary. And it reminded me of that. I was like, holy shit, this is just a cinematic version of this Garfield comic where John is gone and he can't get out of the house and he just starves to death in the house. Interesting. I've never heard of that. Although I'm a huge fan of the Garfield comics that don't feature Garfield and it's just (laughs) John being super depressed and talking to himself. Fuck, those are funny. Crazy. Fuck. But yeah, the cinematic equivalent of a butt dial is probably the best description and review I've heard of this film because some people may be very deeply into that. They, they might be. Um, and just as, just as the last thing, just we were talking about uh, horror books and, and uh, stuff to read if you're uh, a fan of the, the intellectual side of filmmaking and where things fit. I have this book that's just called Asian Horror, and it's got Toshio right on the, the cover. And uh, this breaks down everything from The Ring, The Grudge, Dark Water, The Eye, Old Boy, Audition, uh, just the Pang brothers, Takashi Miike, like all of these directors and writers and, and stuff like that. 
and uh, even some uh, anime like Death Note and stuff like that and how it fits into the larger conversation of horror from Asia and then also how and why it worked in Western audiences at the time that it did. So it's a very, very interesting read. It's by Andy Richards, just called Asian Horror. Fantastic. I've never heard of that. That looks like a book that I'd really enjoy too. Yeah, it's it's quite breezy. It, it, it basically is like a nice snapshot of each of these films and directors and just... But, fuck all that, Lydia. Fuck it to hell. I'm going to ask you the question that I have asked you a hundred and ninety-nine times before. What is this movie even about anyways? This is a movie about betrayal because I gave it two seconds of thought before I actually had to answer this and didn't pull it right out of my butt entirely. It is betrayal not only of some characters involved within this, but betrayal of the viewer by the filmmaker or writer in not clarifying the rules, in betraying what we expect of film or reality. And not only that, the betrayal between the comfort of a home and the safety that we expect to find among one another on a very, very deep level. I like it. I like it a lot. When Zhuan was released, what people need to remember about this time period was Westerners had very little context for how ghosts can operate outside of our own sensibilities, our own folklore. We had things like The Ring that we were familiar with. Zhuan came out afterwards, although if you were to be very technical, and you know I love to be technical, Zhuan is not the first in the series. Zhuan is actually the third in the series. There is two very short films. You could watch them both and under 10 minutes uh, if you are so inclined and uh, one is uh, Karatsumi and the other is 444444444 that is the numerical 410 times that's in reference to a phone number the director Takashi Shimizu uh, had made these two short films which um, I did actually confirm last time when we tried to do this episode I was like it's probably on YouTube they are on YouTube um, mm-hmm. if, if you're a fancy, fancy boy like me, uh, there are extra features on the Grudge Remake DVD that both deal with very specific aspects of the lore in terms of Zhuan, uh, how it kind of fucks with time and space, the jaw ripping, all that kind of shit is both present in those. Now, they were to be later incorporated into other renditions of Zhuan, but when Zhuan came out, I think the thing that scared me the most and what made it so effective to Western audiences, because what's the biggest problem with a fucking ghost? The biggest problem with a ghost, like you watch The Haunting or, or, or shit like that, and you're like, what are they doing? Nothing, right? Like they're just jingling some shit, pushing some doors, and maybe they could drive you slowly mad and you'll drive into a tree or something like that. But like... The there's that sense of an evil presence, but I always wasn't really afraid of ghosts as a kid because I was like, they're just making noise. What's so scary about ghosts that make noise? And then you saw 
the ring and you say, oh my God, well, that's a ghost that fucking like kills you. It's like a slasher, but it's a ghost. But then there's rules. There's rules and ways around it. Juan broke all known rules to me at the time. Perhaps there is a, a wiser, more learned horror expert out there that saw all this stuff coming a mile away. But what Shimizu did was he wrote a curse, pulled from himself whole cloth, uh, although I'm sure people are inspired from various things, but generally speaking, this is not based on any known folklore. This is his own idea of a curse that breaks time, space, and not just that, but the rules of cinema. Things happen in the daytime. Things happen at night. This is not the Eel Marsh house off on a hill surrounded by swamps. This is, this is not the house on Haunted Hill. This is a normal Japanese suburban home that looks like any other house. Um, it looks like a cozy house on top of that. And yet it is the epicenter of this horrific curse that once you cross that threshold, you are fucked and fucked and everyone's fucked. They're, they're going to be okay to find that there is none. It has this bleakness because people are truly innocent. They did nothing but buy a house. They did nothing but try to help people who bought a house. They did nothing but try to find out what happened to the people who went into this house. Everyone was just doing their jobs, being kind, trying to help a kid. And they paid for it with their lives because the thing that happened in this house was so hideously evil, it will consume everything. Within this particular film, we don't find an origin for that. The origin of the evil, as far as we're concerned in this particular film, is the family that owned the house before the people that we meet. One thing about watching this movie again that I hadn't remembered, and I bet you I'll forget it again some other day and watch it again and be like, oh yeah, I forgot about that, is that it's told from different points of view in different chapters. Mm -hmm. So we get to know all of our key characters by viewing them through a different lens in their particular chapter. And they're named, the chapters are named after the person who we're predominantly following. And I, I always forget that. It's such an interesting tactic. And I think that that was one of the more arresting tactics. I haven't encountered other movies that are done quite like that. Typically, we're done with different days, much like Ring. The Ring is done in days. The Shining is done in days. Hell House is done in days. Uh, even something like Requiem for a Dream is done in seasons to delineate the four acts. Here we're meeting a fairly large cast of people one by one and they all intersect. And I think it's one of the most interesting storytelling tactics. Although my brain remembers this story in a linear fashion, beginning with the first family who died in the house and going forward. Yeah. Spoiler alert. People die in the house. <laughs> um, then going forward, through it I, I remember it linearly although the story is not told to us linearly at all in 
2002, I was about 18 years old and I had really not encountered too many films that told stories like this. I was a meat and potatoes type of guy for the movies. I, I really liked straightforward things. And when it came to horror, I had a very um, strict idea of what I wanted for that genre at the time. Like I wanted like boobs at, and that would be all fine and dandy. But I wasn't really uh, afraid of stories like that. And so, you know, does it have a big monster in it? Like I was that kid. And so watching something, and, and to, to really put a fine point on it, well, the idea of watching a foreign film from anywhere, that was not something that I really ever did. And if I had seen foreign films when I was quite young, it was by accident. Like I wouldn't know that's what I'm doing. Generally speaking, when I, I'm watching it, and I remember very vividly, I could not follow it. And then it kind of became boiled down to the idea that, oh, it has one time skip in it, like where I, where, where things get weird. And I always associate it with the Japanese schoolgirls. I'm like, yeah, there's a school girl, her Mona, school ghouls. It's the latest from Disney Plus. Um, the uh, it's like the their 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 monster high killer school ghouls. I could sell that. Fucking. <laughs> you could definitely. Amy would be all over it. She would love that show. <laughs> um, Schoolgirl part was this this aberration in the storytelling where all of a sudden they derail everything and then they tell this story out of time and context and always forget that this sequence exists in the film. But breaking down the chapters, lids, we start off after a new family has moved in and they have not been spoken to uh, and reached out to because this family has themselves an elderly mother who needs help. And so they have social workers that go to the house to chip in. Uh, and well, they had a social worker that went over there and they can't get into contact with them and they can't get into co the contact with the couple that hired them to help with the grandmother. So the, they send Rika. The first chapter is Rika and they send her to go and follow up. And what she walks into is a bit of a disaster. She can't find the parents and the elderly mother is essentially just wallowing in her own filth, a catatonic. I think that this is Japanese horror in a nutshell. It's a filthy house with soiled tatami mats. There's leaks on the floor upstairs. What is going on, Wes? It's a, it's a mess. It's a disaster. I don't think these people took their slippers off at all before they came into this house. It's just a tragedy. Uh, and I'm all kidding aside, that is part of what is so off-putting about this house because we have certain expectations of a small family in suburbia. We have expectations about the cleanliness, the, the order, the fact that someone will be home, God damn it, especially with an elderly person who's invalid in a back room. They need care. They need cleanliness. They need sanitation. All of those things right off the bat. Unsettle anyone anywhere. Does not matter what culture or what sort of socioeconomic background you come from. This is unsettling. 
uh, already. And I, I love that about these scenes going in. Um, I don't love the cleaning of the soil to Tammy mats because that's really gross and must smell. But I feel so terribly for grandma here. It's creepy. It is creepy in a way that you can't quite put your finger on. I think it's because end of life care is uncomfortable for people. And Mm -hmm. the fact that it's also because this woman has been robbed of her dignity. And I think it's, it's scarier than even if the house was empty. Like imagine this film is, well, we went to go check on the mother and not only were the, the, is the mother not there? The 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 young couple who's you know want to look after this woman, they're not there either. So the house is empty, but it's trashed. So immediately you ask yourself, oh well, I don't know. They they just up and left. The and it looks like the place was robbed, or people had just sort of come in and wrecked up the place. And but the fact that they're gone, the place is trashed, and this woman is here. And she's not really capable of communicating in a meaningful way. It adds this air of creepiness because you think to yourself, this woman knows what happened. It's locked in there somewhere. But Rika doesn't have any context for anything that's going on. And neither do we as the audience. So she does what she's hired to do, which is clean this woman up, clean the tatamis. It's a little disturbing that the tatami mats are being hung up and they don't look clean whatsoever they they still look soiled i mean i know that stuff's not cheap but if i were i just be okay so we're just throwing these away because i i can't unless you know something i don't about getting stains like that out of it i just can't imagine and they're not clean like they are absolutely like i know she scrubbed them with soap and water but they just I mean, they're covered in shit. Like, what do you want me to say? Like, <laughs> that's, that's... Yeah. And and it's just... be better for everyone if you just got rid of them. She is trying to figure out what happened. Her boss doesn't know what happened. Nobody knows what happened. Because there, it's, it's not only is everyone missing, the family missing, or it's the people who are helping were missing. Like, the other social workers missing. Oh, I guess they're not... Uh, they're sick or they're not answering their phone. Like no one really seems all that concerned when people. I guess like work like in the work context. Like, yeah, if I if I'm like, hey, where's so and so? I don't know. He didn't show. He no call, no showed, and like he's not answering his phone. I guess I don't assume someone's dead. But you know, since I'm watching a horror movie, <laughs> I, I kind of I kind of do. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> she also has. Uh, there's also somebody else in the house, young Toshio, a little boy likes to like tickle his knees i always thought he was just wearing underwear like little tiny boy gitch little underoos underoos but yeah he has the most robotic voice ever and i think if we're talking about creepy sounds within this film it begins with toshio just saying his name yeah pretty creepy yeah and he's just being a creepy little kid uh, creeping, peeking out between the banister rails, sort of engaging her in conversation a little tiny bit, but just looking creepy and being hunched over and looking like he's trying to make himself as small as possible for whatever reason. He is very cat-like, you might say. Um, 
the, the when I was younger, Toshio was just about the creepiest thing that I ever saw, and the, more so than Kayako herself, who obviously became pretty famous. Although, which is strange because um, Toshio is always on all the covers of everything. That is the boy that they really associate or they they advertise with. But I think it's uh, makes sense in the context of it because he really is the this like harbinger. He 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 or um like or beyond that and then beyond that there's uh, Taiko. But like um within this, I always had these conversations with people who either oh my god Toshio ugh like the second that kid meowed. I was like laughing hysterically. It was the dumbest thing I ever saw. And it might be terrifying because when I was a kid, I don't know if I told this on this podcast before. I might have told this story. I don't know. But when I was a kid, I had a bedroom on the second floor. And below that bedroom was the the side of our house. And it was a very bushy area. There was like this weird sort of, uh, there was a lilac bush that that overarched and it caused like a very sort of like dark sort of bushy area. Anyway, long story short, it seemed like every once in a while there was some neighborhood fucking cats that would get into fights and gang. I don't know how any of you feel about it, but I, when a cat is making a, like their angry yowling sounds like that, like when they're in the middle of the night and you're a kid, it was fucking terrifying. It used to wake me up and it would send chills down my bones. And I would just be like, what is that? What it like, you know, the first time I heard it, I didn't even know that it was cats. It wasn't until it, they would do that. Like, and like, like, and I'd be like, Oh, it's cats. What are they doing? And so I don't know. Cause they weren't our cats. We had kitties growing up, but they were, inside cats like they like they would go out sometimes but at night they were inside so i don't know who these neighborhood cats were but there was two of them and they would fight over territory right underneath my bedroom as a kid it used to scare the fucking crap out of me so when that boy fucking meows it's scary to me i don't think it's ridiculous at all it's it's fucks with your perception like a, a noise like this is coming out of someone who shouldn't be making that noise it was effective. I don't know. It was absolutely effective. I remember being very young and waking my grandmother up to tell her that there was two little lost girls screaming and crying outside. Oh. And we had to call the police or something. And she's like, no, it's cats fighting. And I was like, no, no, it's two <laughs> little girls screaming and crying. I swear to God. I was like, I could not picture this as cats making the sound. And not only was it cats, it was like wildcats like young cougars or something like that so it sounded even more insane but not much different than the sounds you would have heard or the sounds coming out of Toshio's mouth right now I think it's extremely effective it's especially even more effective when you know more of the story because it is so much more tragic and I often think that he makes a sound because of what he'd endured when his family died it involved the cat dying and perhaps as part of the entity that they represent, maybe him and the cat are fused. Maybe that was something that he witnessed. And many children sometimes don't have the words to articulate what they've witnessed, but can imitate sounds or get a sound that's new to them 
or interesting to them or scary to them stuck in their head and they will revocalize it to sort of work out mentally what it is that sound meant to them, what that where that sound fits in the world that they know or what they've learned from that sound. So a lot of what Toshio is doing is reflecting on what he'd seen in the only way that he really knows how as a very young boy makes it so much more scary and tragic and just sad and very effective. And it is part of his embodiment in whatever realm he is inhabiting right now. I think that it also is a bit of a warning to cats make that noise to warn you, like, get away from me, get away from here. Yeah. Um, it is it is the uh, shaking of a rattlesnake's tail that, you know, I'm about to strike if you don't back off. And the... Um, the, the the fact that he is the first spirit, generally speaking, that people see. Now, whether that warning is effective or not, because like I said, once you have crossed that threshold, you're pretty much fucked. And she's no exception. I find it interesting that this film doesn't give you a sense of order to anything. Because, well, the young couple that bought this house, they're not here anymore. This old woman is here and she was here the presumably the same time they were for just as long as they were but they're gone and she's not what is going on the first introduction to kayako into this is a wonderful scene in which you see rika in the room with this old woman this old woman finally is able to verbalize Oh, I warned them. I, I was telling them. I was telling them. I kept trying to tell them. And something was going on. And within the corner of that room is this black entity that hovers over the woman while she hides her face with uh, between her fingers like a little kid. That's what it comes off as. And we see this entity over top of her. And Rika, one of many scenes in which this woman encounters the spirit and you presume that she's dead and they just cut to black and then they're done with the scene and you're not quite sure what you saw or what happened um only that you saw the piercing eyes of a woman who was completely black one of those really good techniques where we get a little more and a little more of a reveal of the monster so to speak throughout the film uh, we get a shadowed nothing that has human humanoid eyes and that's really all we get to see and we do assume that Rika's dead I mean I don't know there's a few things about this movie that I assume because either a I'm not paying attention or just don't get it or didn't read into it properly and I don't know how much of this is like a cultural thing one is at the very end so we'll talk about that at the end but this is also one that maybe me and everybody else in the world just assumed that Rika bought it at this point. And it's only upon really analyzing this film where you realize just how goddamn lucky she really is throughout the rest of it. But yeah, who who do we meet next? Well, that would be a Katsuya, the next chapter of this story. And that is where we're actually going back in time. Now, one thing to, to, to bear in mind is there'll be context for this. Um, 
later on in the film, the very first sequence of events we see would be, in theory, the first events, uh, the first uh, events of the film. Although, actually, it might be a wraparound that we don't quite understand the context to just yet. But then we see Rika going to a house that has been abandoned, and this old woman is there. Now we meet um, Katsuya, who is a humble salary man who has just bought this house. So now we are a couple of weeks earlier from where we first met Rika. And we then learn that um, they have bought this house. They have hired some caretakers to help his wife with taking care of their mother. And everything is going to be just okay, I think, for this family. We find out in a way why this house is a bit of a mess. It's not necessarily trashed uh, when we first see it because it, it appears trashed, but they're just an overwrought, very busy family, it seems. They have no children, which is a fun thing. We'll put a pin in that, as the people say. And they have the husband's mother to take care of who seems a little bit more perky, but is in much the same semi-catatonic state as we've witnessed before. She's a little more talkative, but not by much. She's just a very old, very tired woman who needs care. And the rest of the family is pretty busy. They are going to be having a little dinner with the husband's sister, Hitomi, who I really like. And it just seems like a very normal family. They don't seem to have overreached by buying this very cozy home and I didn't understand either that they hadn't been in this house very long they hadn't lived there very long it seemed on their comfort level and the mess of the house that they'd been living there quite some time yeah I it's they they seem to believe that it's the grandmother who is doing this sort of stuff she is because a lot of it a lot of the trash around is like crumpled up newspaper and little plastic wrappers that might be on candies or perhaps like something that you'd get a convenience store just like that cheap clear plastic except there are leaks upstairs that are just like here's some leaks that uh don't look too bad it looks like they haven't been sitting there too long um but um or had told me had brought those for groceries so they hadn't been there long at all but yeah it is like you you blame the grandmother who they assume has been roaming at night yeah. and getting into things and making messes. And then when you meet her, it's, it seems pretty obvious to me that she's not the roaming around at night type. But there is someone who does like to roam around. When um, uh, Katsuya's wife is asleep, she has uh, or getting a few moments peace and rest. She falls asleep on, the, on her seat in the living room and then that tea gets knocked over. And that starts off this sequence of events that um, is absolutely fucking terrifying. This idea of this little boy. Eventually, when Katsuya gets home, he finds that his wife is now the one who's uh, catatonic. And there are noises happening. And we can see as the audience, Toshio just scampering all over the place out of line of sight of him with no idea what the fuck this little boy is doing more so than a haunting because uh, they they tell you right off off the bat um, the context for everything in this film 
the director feels like the movie is about. It's like when, or he says, when someone dies in the grip of a powerful rage, a curse is born. That curse lingers in the place of death. Those who encounter it will be consumed by its fury. And that extends to not just consumption of body, but also consumption of mind. A lot of times in hauntings, especially in these types of movies, you'll see that the ghosts are trying to relive their moments. They're, they're stuck in a loop of time. They're probably not aware of how, that they're dead, how long they've been dead, that they're uh, just repeating things over and over and over again. This curse makes you reenact the domestic violence in a sense because and particularly with men who seem to be inhabited by the spirit of uh, Taiko. And we see that Katsuya is no exception to this. And you see he's got this like very sinister demeanor that overcomes him. When his sister Hitomi shows up, he's sitting on the stairwell, not speaking, looking at her like he might snap at any moment. You know, quite the coiled spring, but he seems to also have his faculties enough that he's trying to get rid of her on top of that. Like, get out of here, get out of here, get out of here. Now, I don't know if it's to protect his sister or if it's, I like, I got to hide a body and you're here and I need to take care of this type thing. Yeah, and he's maybe still confused. He's sort of in between the two personas, so to speak, where he's not uh, enraged at all women, Maybe partially wants to protect his sister, but also maybe doesn't understand what he's done entirely and just feels out of sorts and isn't really sure what's going on, but just knows that he needs to cancel the family dinner because <laughs> pretty soon there won't be much family to uh, enjoy this dinner, it seems, perhaps. The the next chapter, um, I would argue, is the most famous sequence in this film by a country mile. I'd say Rika's chapter, the opening chapter, is also one that people tend to remember quite well. But Hitomi is, if you were watching that uh, documentary series that they did, 101 Scares, that they did on Shudder, like the scariest moments in film, when whenever the, the number came up where they were doing Zhuan the Grudge, I didn't even need another second after I saw the title of the film. I knew exactly what sequence that they were going to cite as the scariest moment in this film. And you want to talk about betrayal, Lids. This betrays time, space, logic, and our most primal senses of comfort that we develop as children. It spits all over it. Which is so weird because I don't find this scene scary. Of the scenes involving Hatomi, when she is in her office and this entity is following, we get this is a, such an amazing sequence because we get a lot of stuff. It breaks a lot of rules, it sets a lot of rules, and it gives us some expectations and also thwarts them. But we get to see it killing somebody who has never entered the house and doesn't know these ghosts. <laughs> we get to see it captured in film. We get to see how just 
persistent Toshio is. And the scene that scares me the absolute most in this is when she is escaping her workplace, taking an elevator, and through the little window in the elevator, we see the floors whipping by, and on every floor is Toshio just waiting for that elevator to stop. And it's so... That is so terrifying to me. That is the persistence of this ghost totally breaking space-time and just waiting menacingly. I, I I think it's so scary. But that's not the scene that most people find scary that involves the sister, Hitomi. Hitomi is terrified. She is called a security guard. She is yeah. called... She's Her brother actually calls her. And that's another mm-hmm. point where this ghost just... We don't know what to fucking make of it because it can imitate people or take such control over people that it can have them say and do whatever it likes. I guess it can send people across town to knock on the door too. Or so you would think. So much of this curse has you guessing what is happening and what is not happening. How much of this is psychological? How much of this is not psychological? But the thing that throws a monkey wrench in the entire thing is this security guard because this is something that is caught on film. This is not some, this is not oh I heard something and if this was a western movie or 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 whatever they would go in there and be like uh okay ma'am you're crazy out you go. There is the security guard says you wait here on the camera go and check it out. And again, you could be thinking that Hitomi is just being psychologically affected by this, but it's caught on camera. What happens? This black entity dissolves a person who never crossed the threshold of that house, but now crosses a different sort of threshold, enters into Hitomi's orbit, and is consumed by the curse that has attached itself to her. Toshio being able to be on every floor makes you ask the question, is this entity moving between floor to floor or is this entity attached to Hitomi and is moving with her so as she passes through the floors, so is it? But then you'd ask yourself, why is it manifesting itself where she can't see it. Only we, the audience, can see it. And the technical answer to that is to invoke dread in us, to let us know Mm -hmm. that this entity is attached to her. But narratively speaking, it raises tons of fucking questions. Then what you were saying about the cell phone, it tells you, and this, again, is demonstrated in 444-444-444, it's that there is an understanding that this entity understands what technology is, is able to fucking use it, is able to manipulate your mind into either thinking that you are, um, thinking that you are talking to a, one of your loved ones, or perhaps even forcing your loved ones to try to talk to them, but to lull you into a false sense of security. And it's fucking with you on a such a deep and primal level because she has a moment in which her brother knocks on the door and it begs the question, I'm like, do you need her to open the door so you can get in? 
Or what's the point of this? What's the point of like you took her charm from her phone and you're letting her know that you have the charm. What's the point of making her open the door to think her brother was there? What's the point of fucking with the TV? What's the point of any of it? It's and and again, it's it's like this maliciousness. It's this hatefulness and the relentlessness of this curse and the way that it can clearly fuck with all of your senses, but also be a present thing. A present thing to someone who did nothing. An innocent person to the highest degree. She walked into the house, dropped off some groceries, got asked to leave by her brother who was distressed about something. And that is the extent of it. That is the extent of her involvement in this curse. And not even did her brother do anything? No. He lived in a house. She crossed a threshold, period. That's all they did. We know that they did nothing. Why is this entity chasing her and terrorizing her, like straight up terrorizing her, terrorizing her that if these things happen without any supernatural real explanation, you would be calling the police a couple times as a person who was experiencing this. And then we get the coup de grace, which is the scariest scene, according to most people. I think that I'm just caught up in all of the setup that makes this scene so scary that I'm scared already. I don't need this scene, but it is. She does what any four-year-old would do. She jumps into bed and puts the covers over her head. Yes. We see this shape moving underneath her of her blankets and... This what ends up happening is when she raises those covers, she is encountering something that breaks all previously understood forms of logic, where this entity is in a space that she cannot be occupying. There is not enough space for a full person there. And then furthermore, Hitomi is dragged into nothingness. And it's just, she's gone. And you what happened to her? Is she got pulled into some alternate dimension? Has she been nullified by the universe? Has she been consumed in some way, shape, or form? What has happened? And and I think that it works on such a psychological level because of the fact that, yes, as children, we might hide under blankets if, if we were scared in the middle of the night. Or it works because there's this uncanny valley of there's a face where there shouldn't be a face because what is that face attached to? It can't be anything. And, and, and I think that's why it's so effective. And that brings us to, that brings that chapter to a close. I think the thing that I liked so much about the, 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 the chapters is that they just serve as like just little vignettes of, of the same curse affecting all these different people. In the next chapter that we uh, we open up with is Toyama. And this is where we get the investigative side of this. I think what's so fascinating is when you're dealing with these detectives, at no point are you really dealing with detectives that are that are saying, haunted house, I don't buy it. This is a murder, plain and simple. You have these guys who are in the bag fucking immediately because they get uh, Toyama, who's the only detective left who worked on that case from five years ago. And 
I guess he was the only one that didn't enter in the home. We open up a sequence in which he's talking to his young daughter, Izumi, and then he is recruited by the detectives of the day. Can you come and help us deal with this? And he's reluctant at first because he views this house ominously. The lead detective, this older gentleman, he is seems very acutely aware of the situation. Like, mm, yes, there's dark forces we don't understand. But he's trying to get context for what's happening. At no point do they think that a human is the murderer. Or at least that's not the sense that I get. Um, they get a sense that something supernatural is happening. Up to and including this Buck Wild sequence that ties into Hitomi's sequence in which they show the, 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 the closed circuit footage of the security guard being killed by the curse, Kayako, whatever. It's all on film. And the detectives show Toyama this, this uh, film and they so he's seen it. He's seen the entity become aware of the camera and walk towards the fucking camera. All the detectives had to, it's not like uh, you watch the sequence that none of us have watched yet and we'll leave you alone and we'll come back. No, they, they watched it first and then they would show it to him. So they're all aware of this. So, and there's not really a whole hell of a lot of the library scenes, except the only thing really is you now have Rika who's, here and they're talking to her asking her questions trying to get her to figure out and this is where you're like oh she's not dead because her boss <laughs> her boss yeah. came into the room the old woman is was killed when kayako made her first appearance and rika is just cowering in the corner rika sees that footage i i, I find it just very very interesting that at no point the detectives seem to be thinking that this is a curse what is so weird is that the co-worker of Rika's that found her ends up dying of yeah. a, like a sudden heart attack or, or something and kind of contorted. Folded up underneath like a, a a stainless steel like thing. I don't know what it is. A desk or something. Yeah. And he spent a very short amount of time in the house. She is still alive for all this. And it it's, it's very awkward because you're thinking, okay, is it something to do with her connection with Toshio? Is it the amount of time he spent in the house? No, it can't be because this security guard who we've just seen die a second time on the closed caption video uh, had no contact with it. So there's no telling at what point people can die. We don't get a nice convenient seven days phone call to explain it at all. And we're, we're left sort of pulling threads at this point, much like the detectives who don't know what's going on. The only detective who seems to know what's going on is scared to death of this house to the point he was so scared to go in it. He didn't before. This will be the first time that he does go into it. And he goes in with a fucking can of gas to burn the shit down. <laughs> Never thought I'd have to do this again. The, um, <laughs> the, the sequence is really incredible because you have the first, like, what I would consider serious what the fuck moment in this sequence when he opens up a door and he, you can see that it's like an out of context. It is like a, a, a portal almost to this other dimension, this other time in which he's seeing a gaggle of girls 
teenage schoolgirls in their little uniforms uh, exploring this house. What a house, you guys. And they're breaking it in. And he sees his daughter, Izumi, now a few years older. And she was in at least middle school when we last saw her. Now she seems to be about 15, so four or five years. They lock eyes with each other. Again, letting you know that this is not a vision that he's making up. This is a direct rip in time that you are yeah. seeing, which again is another level to this curse where you're asking why why are you seeing through time? And when I first saw this sequence, I was just, I was like, what the fuck am I even, what's happening? I don't get it. This could be a scene that turns off a lot of more Western viewers, I think. I think so. And and I want to like really put context to our, our listeners. If you came here loving the Zhuan and thinking it's an amazing movie, we're right here with you, or at least I am. I fucking love this movie. And, yep. and what might sound like complaints about no context to how the curse works, in my opinion, this makes it extremely effective. It It is not giving you the comfort of knowing what the rules are. Threshold exposes you to something hideously evil and that can seemingly do anything and not only destroy you, but infect your life like a virus. And it attaches to you and it attaches to others. The sequence of Kayako coming down the stairwell, coming out of that closet that's all taped up, is beautifully done. It's relentless. It's aggressive. Kayako's noise that she makes from her throat, I feel like most people figure out why she makes that noise quite easily. The director actually said that he never wanted to explicitly say why she makes that noise, but her throat has been crushed. She was strangled and her larynx was crushed and that's how come she makes this utterance that she does. While he sees the vision of his family or his daughter in the future, now Kayako makes her appearance and then he even runs out of the house, which is going to be the theme of what this family does, while the two lead detectives got him out of there and they're cowering in fear together in a corner as Kayako heads towards them. When you're seeing um, those detectives uh, at the crime scene when Rika is finally found and shit like that, you're not just seeing the detectives, you're seeing uniformed officers, you're seeing crime scene photographers, you're, you're probably seeing their CIA type people, like like they're like getting gathering evidence and doing all this stuff. There's like 20, 30 people in this house. And I just kept thinking like dead, 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 dead. These are like 20 to 30 stories that we're not seeing. Yeah. But all of these people at some point are going to be dead, missing or consumed by this curse, forced to reenact it, kill their families, however you want to look at it. Which I think is the, the one of the other things, like of the three things that I didn't really get. <laughs> one is explained away, of course. I thought Rika died. Obviously yeah. she didn't. And the other one is, yeah, those unspoken stories. And it's still, that sort of speaks to that third thing that I didn't quite get until we started having conversations about this film but yeah he flees it's not long before he ends up succumbing i don't know what the timeline is here on his actual 
death if not suicide uh but he does descend into madness throughout the next few years of his daughter's life azumi does not have a happy life after this her father makes it out of the house alive it was never the same again before we leave this chapter we are going to have it end because all the detectives are dead what about rika rika is alive the the very famous shower scene where you have like the hand going through her hair she goes to bed mm-hmm. and we end this is ridiculous in my opinion but like we end the sequence with kayako hovering over her bed and then toshio sitting on the end of her bed like fingering his knees like the little pervert he is and well kayako's like ah and then the, the 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 music crescendos and then boom we cut away and we're at the next and like, okay now rika's dead for a hundred for realsies she's fucking dead no problem and then it seems to confirm that because izumi is the next chapter and now we are at least five years into the future but there's another monkey wrench because when izumi is uh, when you hear the radio that Azumi's mother is listening to, you find that police find Rika's body in the attic. And so you'd think, well, wait, how long ago was all of this happening? So they just found Rika's body, but we just saw Rika. There's an explanation for that. Because it, when the detectives were working on the show, Rika was her, the age that she was and Izumi was the age that she was. This sequence um, with the schoolgirls reminds me very much of the beginning of The Ring. I think it's just because you've kind of turned into, well, here's the teenage girl part. And I was always very curious. Um, I don't know what you think. Do you think that this sequence existed to appeal to a younger Japanese audience? Like, you know, it's been a lot of like detectives and family people and career people. Let's get some teens in here and tell a little bit of a teen story. I think partially, yeah. It is a lot of where these sorts of curses and fables live. I mean, there's something like 17 different ghosts involved in Japanese school bathrooms. Mm-hmm. So it, it stands to reason that, that these sorts of stories appeal the most to school-age kids. Or they've heard stories like this mm-hmm. at school. And that sort of look is very popular and it's very easy to cast and it's very easy to dress. So it's just an easy scene to shoot. It works really well with with explaining this long timeline to show these teenage girls and to really fuck with our heads as far as little tiny school age Izumi and high schooler Izumi. I mean, that's helpful. So I think also that it does work in the idea that this house is going to be abandoned for any length of time in suburban Tokyo. You're going to have school kids try and break in on the little bit of downtime that they have because urban exploration is a pastime around the world. (laughs) School-age kids just do this. So it only stands to reason that this house would be abandoned for any length of time that some sort of school kids, whether they mean well or not, are going to bust their way in and check out the abandoned slash haunted house. It doesn't even matter if it's abandoned or haunted or both. 
school kids will try and find a way in there to check it out. So it makes sense that it exists for that reason as well. I really like the scene in that it reminds me a lot of the series, which is so much more darker. If you've watched the recent Grudge series that is on Netflix, mm -hmm. it is so much darker and it, it revolves heavily around these school high school kids going into the haunted slash abandoned house. And it's so touching really because the kids almost look exactly the same. And it's maybe just part of school uniforms haven't changed a hell of a lot yeah. in the last like 40 years in Japan. So that's part of it. And it's just part of that sort of look that we can appreciate, especially here in the West where very few of our schools have uniforms and the style of their uniforms in the sailor style uniform for girls anyway, looks very cool. I think it's a cool look. I like it. Um, that Harajuku girl kind of meme persists for a reason because it looks cool and it also adds to that sort of timelessness I think so there's a lot of reasons why this scene exists and it's not just to only appeal I think to the school aged viewer of horror movies because it is a different sort of demographic that watches horror movies in other places outside of North America so I think maybe partially but not entirely why that scene was included I, I i think you really hit the nail on the head with the urban exploration aspect of this film because um that that is something that young people would do every time you see an abandoned house anytime that i see that someone has like broken in to sort of check it out look around i always just assume that it's probably teenagers or at the very least someone in their like their very early 20s um and I think you need to and and Juan the series that's on Netflix also does address this idea of like so like I heard that there's like a super haunted house that uh, you got to go check it out which is exactly what Azumi was doing there we're introduced to her friends who have a bunch of pictures from a, a class trip that they had taken and for whatever reason it was within walking distance of this house and so some of the kids took that opportunity to take off and go exploring that is the sequence that Toyoyamas had seen while he was attempting to burn down the suburban household he's going to see years later that his own daughter is going to go and what does she do when uh, you see the um the moment in which izumi is in that house with her friends you see that she gets so scared, freaked out by seeing her father's image in that door that she runs away. And then shortly thereafter, we witness that, or we hear at the very least, that all those schoolgirls had gone missing. And you see their missing posters that have been around for long enough for the paper to become weathered and faded. And so it's been a few weeks at the very least that these young kids went missing. And her her daughter, or sorry, Izumi has become increasingly isolated. Their mother is sort of a shell of a woman. She's lost her husband to who descended into madness, and then we find out killed himself. And now Izumi is in the same place. She is. Her room has the lights off. She has everything taped up. Tape seems to be a way that keeps the spirits from entering so maybe it is a weird sense of like can the curse not cross like doors and stuff like that like and windows and you might think that, you have to see it yeah it, it, it's you would think so because 
eventually what ends up happening is there's breaks in the tape and that's when the spirits see through and start attacking her like and it's it's again this is the first time that the the curse throws us yet another curveball because now it's not showing us Toshio it's not showing us Kayako it's not showing us anybody but the girls that Izumi feels guilty for running away from and leaving them to their deaths so then you get the question of so is the curse just who can manifest whoever's been consumed by it already and they will present to you people to torment you again being extremely malevolent in the process and she uses the the these zombie looking schoolgirls almost shuffle towards her and causing her to back up into the shrine for her father and then Kayako shows up and again this extreme demonstration of being able to challenge time and space she is grabbed by the head and pulled into the shrine into darkness where we just see her her now ghostly face and now the ghostly face of her father on two different perspectives both consumed by the curse together at different times. I like these zombie girls too. They remind me sort of of the water zombies in a way from Creep Show. And it is interesting that it it's like does the entity just choose the most effective ghost that it's absorbed at that point? Is it the cat for some and Toshio for many, especially women? Uh the friends more so than the father get at Izumi for whatever reason. And you would think that being haunted by her father would be a good way to fuck with her. Or Kayako fuck with anybody because she's fucking terrifying. I think you don't need another scary ghost. Kayako is so scary. <laughs> she's so fucking scary. Exactly. Um, but when you got all these other ghosts, maybe they need a turn in the spotlight perhaps, but... Yeah, it, it this is more akin to what we would expect from a haunting, ghostly, vengeful ghost, scary movie. Very much more Western style zombie looking ghost girls. I agree. I, I, I think that this sequence, even though I do like it, it seems cut from a completely different movie to me. Yeah. It, it, and it really throws a wrench into the timeline although I have it kind of worked out in my head and I'll get to that in a second because we have now the final chapter that's simply titled Kayako and when you first see this chapter title show up we know through the, the police investigation Taiko was the husband Kayako was the wife Toshio was the little boy yellow cat that was the family that seemed to start this entire thing we believe although was this family just another victim of something I don't know I, th I believe it was Taiko though but the the thing to that throws you off about this is oh so this is a chapter that's going to tell us what happened to Kayako? What actually happened to start this curse? Great, let's go. No, 
it doesn't. Because Rika is not fucking dead. She is back. And I love me a good final girl. You can't keep her down. But this, in my opinion, throws an even bigger wrench into the whole thing. And I, I, I hate that I keep fucking saying that. But it's because Rika has now, from what I can tell, maybe being the most, the longest lived person to cross the threshold of that house multiple times and not be killed, even though that she is being regularly haunted by this curse. And we've seen it several times throughout the film and two sequences at the very least where you think that she's dead. Because when this sequence starts off, you see that not only is she alive and well, but she's kind of moved on with her life. She has, she's back at, at uh, her, her place of work the, where she is a social worker and she is caring for people and she is just going to go meet her sister. And it's been years now since all of this has happened. She's older. She's more mature. Her sister's a teacher now. And yet the curse rears its head again. What do you make of this last chapter? It again makes Toshio. And this is why he's on the cover of everything because he is just so freaky and creepy and can manifest to the point that other people can see him. Other people can interact with him. He's the most mobile and noble of the ghosts. It's just, it really helps cement him as the most scary entity in all of this because that little goon, he's enrolled in school for whatever reason. A little boy who hasn't come to school, which makes me think, is this not happening at the very beginning of this whole chain of events? Is this not how people would have been turned on to what had originally happened in the house? Is Toshio not showing up for school? Mm -hmm. But no, it seems to be happening at the very end of the chain. Again, bending our space and time. But Rika recognizes what's going on. When she realizes that... Uh, well, first of all, there's that restaurant sequence in which Toshio is literally just like... She looks underneath her table... And just there he is in the uh, in a crowded room in the middle of broad daylight again throwing your expectations out the window and I remember seeing that sequence for the first time just be like Jesus Christ like has this been her reality too and this is again like the things that we don't see that make it even more scary she goes to sleep every single night with Toshio crouched on her bed much like a night hag or the painting the nightmare and his dead mother crouched over and looming over her face, making that horrific noise. Mm -hmm. Is Has this been her reality for how many, what, seven years? Mm -hmm. We're not, it could be 10 years. Like, is, has this been what she's been enduring? And now just by knowing the school teacher and having lunch with her, perhaps, this is what has spread it to her. But she's already had that route. She's already had that realization that the original family that she had gone to see to help the elderly grandmother out who had ended up dying in her care and with her crouched in the corner terrorized, they never had a little boy, but she certainly recognizes Toshio. Her sister seems to be at the house and saying, there's just this little boy and I'm just looking for his parents. Rika rushes to help her sister knowing what has happened 
she manages to catch her sister getting pulled again up into that attic that has that creepy taped off door and within this starts the final haunting sequence where you have Tycho finally make his like official grand appearance um, and you find that when Rika is leaving or trying to leave she passes the mirror and sees herself as Kayako so the chapter is not here's what happened to Kayako via flashing back to the original moment it's this is what happened to Kayako through the curse reenacting itself with her in the place of Kayako. This is why it's a Rika story all over again, because she is Kayako. Any person who sets foot in that house to a certain extent has probably been embodied in this same fashion as well. And she may not have been the first. It seems to be that she is the last though because of the way that this movie goes and ends with the scene that i did not get after multiple viewings of this it is also before we get to that the one of the the best scenes of kayako we get to see her in the most broad daylight my only like problem with the scene is that they didn't put that weird body paint all over her so different limbs are a slightly different color a little more human color but she has descended into full monster regalia with crawling backwards down the stairs the horrible sounds blood this is actually where it gets sort of gory for the first time mm -hmm. and is like very terrifying to look at um Toshio has also undergone some slight changes from being a fairly normal looking little boy to being like entirely blue. Mm -hmm. And it, he's like his eyes are ringed and staring and he's quivering even more and he's fidgeting even more. So he's become like a very scary ghost <laughs> instead of just like a somewhat creepy little kid. I really enjoy the look of this final scene and it's far more colorful too. It really is. This um, sequence ends with you finding Tycho bringing Rika back upstairs. She's in this bag and you find her in the uh, attic and then you realize um, at least to the, uh, the extended alternate ending of this film that the opening sequence where you think Taika is killing his wife, it's actually a wraparound of him killing Rika, who has embodied his wife, just, again, reenacting this again and again and again by crushing her throat and then um, killing her with a knife. And the, the director had said that he just wanted to give a people a sense of this is what happened to Kayako. Um, this is how she spent the last moments of herself alive. And then furthermore, you have these long shots of empty streets. And the director had said that he wanted to make sure that it was understood that everyone in this place had been consumed by this curse. It was empty. And that's how come 
he had removed shots that made it look like it was just early morning and no one had gotten up and gone to work yet. Like he wanted to really make it understood that no, everyone in at the very least in this suburb or this town or the or the, this borough or however you want to look at it, uh, district prefecture prefecture uh, it, it's gone it didn't work for me it didn't work for me it did not work for me i did not know that until i was told that the director said <laughs> that that is what was intended it seemed to me to be more like establishing shots that we get in a film like halloween yes to show that this could be anywhere and that was the more feeling i had up until recently on multiple viewings of this film is that it could happen anywhere. This is just a regular place. And it reminds me of some of the establishing shots that happen in It Follows. And we're not led to believe that the entire world has been destroyed in It Follows either. It's just to drive home that this could be anywhere. This could happen to anyone. And just the mundane quality of this haunting. That's really what I thought. I did not think that everyone in this town, borough, city, continent world potentially have been consumed by this curse yeah it's a little bit of six degrees of separation where you um where this person knows that person and so on and so forth uh, I, I remember not really liking it and i liked it being more of a story about an isolated incident but i think if i could speak for the director i don't know he didn't say this but it seems to me what i'm getting from this film again and again and again is it's that idea of when you're walking through your neighborhood and you see normal looking homes with normal looking properties and everything looks fine you don't know what is really going on or as i thought it was eloquently put to me one time you can know a building but you'll never know the lives that have lived there and you don't know like when you look past that house that looks beautiful and quaint and cozy and a great place for a young family and you're like what's going on in there or what has gone in there or a thought that I have so even in my own apartment like when I sit around sometimes and it's and it's quiet and I look around and I have this thought and sometimes I verbalize it out loud and I say to myself what's the worst thing that's ever happened in this room like and I don't mean like I, I wonder if someone was murdered here but just in the context of all the terrible things that can happen with people in a room, what is the worst thing that happened in this room? Is it something horrible, like a violent crime? Or is it something like someone fell and broke their leg here once? That could be the worst thing that's happened in this room. That is why there is a fantastic website so that you can rest assured that there are creepy houses at every corner called housecreep.com. And if this existed in the time that the, the garage would have been being made, it would have been a lot easier. It's easier. It makes life easier mm -hmm. for school-aged children who want to check out creepy properties. It also maybe helps me someday, if I ever were to become a homeowner, it would have to be a stigmatized property of some sort that somebody got killed in because that's the only way that the price would drop in this goddamn economy. But you can type in Ottawa and check out 88 Bridal Park Drive, which used to be a marijuana grow operation, or 65 Promenade Stone Meadow, shooting and murder of Michael Rankin, or 4139 Moody Drive, man shot to death in home, Michael Swan 19 was shot to death with three men 
entered his home. And it goes on. And it's a worldwide listing. Very creepy shit, Wes. So if you ever want to put in some old Alta Vista addresses, there was a time not long ago when I had asked you if you knew of a particular house near your old place where the, the basement with the shag carpet is that listeners know all too well. And it was because of uh, some true crime stories that I'd heard and I'd looked it up on House Creep. House Creep would have definitely helped these people out. Although it does happen so insidiously and it is this the, the betrayal of not only does this look like a normal house, which makes me think like, did this couple who moved in, the initial couple where this grudge began, were they tainted by the soil, the very soil that this house is built on? Is there another memory inside this house where someone else had died with this consuming rage? Or is did it really begin? Was everything 100% right in the world and there was no need for a website like House Creep until Kayako got killed in that house? I don't know. You had asked me um, once uh, when we were recording this the first time if I actually think Kayako cheated yes. on her husband. Which I still, it's hard for me to understand where his rage came from unless he really had some proof or was nuts. I, I, I still maintain that he was probably a controlling and jealous person and over time convinced himself that this is what had happened and it brought him to the point of madness. Now, that's different in the remake and we'll talk very heavily about that, the, the idea of if uh, Kayako had um, cheated on her husband and perhaps even uh, had a son that was not his in the process of that, um, that is very ambiguous in the film. And I think that you could make an argument for the idea that maybe this was just a quaint suburban family who loved each other and like a, almost like a Jack Torrance type situation. You had Tycho slowly infected by this evil, this malice, and it caused him to do this. But I think that this becomes less effective and less relatable when you say that it is, oh, it's an evil entity from eons past, that the real life isn't like that. The sad fact is, is jealous husbands kill their family all the time. And sometimes it's based off of, well, they were really cheating. And then sometimes it's, this person was mentally ill. Uh, mothers kill their children. Um, People kill their siblings, people kill their parents, like, like, and so I think this is effective as a family tragedy, just purely a family tragedy that can happen in any household. And it, and that typical family tragedy poisoned this entire neighborhood. That's yeah, what I think okay. happened. I, I like that idea. And it is so true that this sort of tragedy persists. And part of why this has had such staying power is this not, if not the, but one of the 
franchises with the most sequels? It has. Because it has a shit ton of sequels. If you were to include the remake. So the interesting thing about this, uh, dear listeners, and again, we'll talk about this when we get into the remake, is that um, uh, Takashi Shimizu, uh, he is very involved in the remake. He directs it. He writes it. There's some similarities, but there's also some big differences. He kind of broke the back of his own story and presented it to a Western audience. So I think that the Grudge remake is extremely instructive when it comes to showing how one person who is Japanese thought, how do we make this more palatable to a Western audience? It wasn't just a bunch of like Americans being like, let's make this more American so people have context for it. I think you have like a very sensitive and unique product after that. And that led to three sequels. There's four remakes. There's four remake sequels. And then there are uh, two shorts. Zhuan, that's three. Zhuan 2. Then there is Zhuan White and Zhuan Black. And then Mm -hmm. there is... Uh, Kayako versus or Sadako versus Kayako, which is its own thing, but that also counts. And then there is there was a fifth modern remake of the Grudge that is sequelizing the previous ones, acknowledging that they existed, they happened, and it is the curse that's from Japan. Although uh, Kayako makes an appearance as an arm, and then the rest of it is just this new family that has become the new curse in America and I guess whatever it was it was okay there were some pretty cool gross gory sequences in it but uh, as a grudge like you I want Kayako I want Toshio and if you're not giving me that I like I don't care how good your horror movie is it's not what I put money down to see yeah it's weird that it's a grudge movie in a way like they could have just called it the, the curse. They could have. And have it divorced from the grudge, but okay. They want to call it a grudge film. It's like an, they could have called it Cloverfield too. <laughs> That's a good reference. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know because uh, it does have a lot of sequels and, and like there's also like I have like two uh, mangas here which are their own unique stories that the, the director and writer like had a hand in as well there's the Wii game there's all and again there's all these different specific stories around this one curse and I think it just shows that there's just something if you'll pardon it pardon the expression like infectious about this notion Mm -hmm. and like I I I really I I really think that of this J-horror boom that came off of the backs of Ring and then Zhuan um they started off so strongly and even though there's other films that are very similar to Zhuan that there's a film about that's like a haunted locker when you go to the locker you're cursed there's a film from 2004 literally called Cursed which I'd actually really be interested in doing for the show about a a cursed convenience store if you go to the convenience store you die so um, that's very very interesting um uh, uh, so I'd like to get to that eventually, just called Cursed. But um, 
so there's a lot of films that tried to do this and even if some of the sequels to Juan weren't all that effective and some of them are baffling like truly truly baffling um it, again starting here with Juan the Grudge is just incredible absolutely incredible film it truly is and I like that it really modernizes a lot of what we picture from a very old idea of a woman betrayed a woman wronged that comes back from death usually to inflict revenge upon her husband and maybe anyone else who behaves like their husband had especially if they're killed at the hands of the husband there's some very old ghost stories about this but this is a completely modernized version where no one is wearing you know uh, giant kimonos <laughs> tabby or uh, have a big um, wig on much like in the time of the samurai where we have a very particular uh, wood cut and tapestry painting idea of these ghost stories but a fully modernized version so much easier to retell and so timely because we hear these stories mirrored in our news and true crime broadcasts even today so yeah fantastic film i'm very much looking forward to talking about the remake but first we will be talking about something a little different we will we thought it would be good to break it up for the listeners to talk about the remakes of these films in a staggered way kind of the same way that we did them initially so the next film that we're going to be doing is the ring the first remake that really started the J-horror boom and then also the J-horror remake boom and I'm excited to do that one finally because it's also instructive about how you handle things differently and oh just I, I can't wait to talk about the, the the color palette of that film the blues and the blacks it's just so beautiful it really is and I, I realize now that I screwed you out of asking me what is coming up next so on our next episode, which will be episode 201, you will be able to ask me that. And we'll both already know and everyone will already know that we'll be doing. Coming up next, we have The Ring. I'm very excited. And I just wanted to like just say one final thing about doing the 200 episodes is that I was looking back on some of our older episodes. And I remember like, like we used to be funnier. Like I feel like we were like had more high energy and like we're a little goofier. There was one that we did that might be one of my favorite of our original like first 50 episodes which is the maniac cop episode not only did you were we cracking up we were just fucking dying laughing because you were talking about uh you said candy jack you were talking about like we were kind of like talking about candy man and then it just turned into candy jack um but also i when we did the end credits, I put in a record scratch and then I put in the Maniac Cop rap from Maniac Cop 2. And I was just thinking to myself, we were so playful back then. <laughs> I think it owes itself to the genesis of the show. We used to be able to sit there and crack each other up where now we have this damn screen in our way. That's true. And we're not as funny as a result because we're not finding each other as funny. Yeah, the, there's 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 definitely some uh, energy that's lost by us not like 
kind of watching the movie together and kidding it. But I think we'll bring that back um, eventually when it's when, when it's convenient because like I haven't gotten COVID, so I think we're okay. I haven't either. We've been the luckiest people I know, man. I know. So yeah. Uh, we'll be we'll be planning something once it warms up. Like, why even bother when it's freezing cold outside? <laughs> that's true. That's true. So, like, maybe when it warms up, we'll start talking about like doing this uh, together again. But uh, the one thing that I really appreciate uh, this whole pandemic situation taught us anything is that we managed to get like almost fifty episodes out the door by doing it in a new way. So it lets me know that through time and space much like the grudge this podcast can come from anywhere wow it seriously can it also helps so that once we do get rolling back into our sitting across from one another for real and recording the show if it's too cold out we can still do it remotely in the winter time so i like that <laughs> i like that you just say how is there a way that if it's cold out, we don't have to do anything. I know you hate the cold, so I, I totally respect that. But yeah. I'm the one that has to go out. <laughs> you are the one that has to go out in it. And, and you handle the cold way better than me. I know. I'm a polar bear man. You truly are. <laughs> and on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening for 200 episodes to Dead Air. If you like this show, you can find more episodes and other content on splatterpictures.net, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. You can also find us on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. The show is edited by Lydia Peaver and hosted by Lydia Peaver and me, Wes Knipe. We'll see you next time.